Well, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you would. I say we're going to weave these questions into finishing out this, uh, this chapter. It's an overview, obviously. Um, you know how difficult it is to preach an entire chapter in one message, at least how difficult it is for your pastor. And um, we were unable to do that this morning, but I think we covered the meat of what we, we needed to. There's actually two choices that we could have approached, the way we could approach this this morning, give it less detail and cover the whole thing and then come back tonight and give more detail or do it the way that, uh, that we, we did. But tonight we're going to answer some questions um, that have been posed and also finish up this, this topic. And we covered three of the four categories of people that 1 Corinthians 7 addresses this morning. Those who were uh, against marriage, those who were... All right, Tim, why don't you just run this thing, would you? Number two. Those who were previously married, those currently married, and then tonight we'll look at those... Never married. So 1 Corinthians 7 is God's final revelation, final word on the subject. Now, that doesn't mean that you couldn't find a New Testament epistle somewhere that mentions marriage uh, that, that dates later than 1 Corinthians 7. I mean, Revelation talks about marriage. But this is the, the final significant Revelation from God on the on the topic, and it's the most extensive teaching about marriage and divorce in the Bible. It's a commentary on the topic, and God applies it to New Testament believers. Now, truth is timeless, and it's also transcendent. Now, our culture doesn't believe that. You, you know that very well. They they want to say truth is relevant. And they want to define what is right and wrong based upon the culture. But that's not the definition of, of truth. Truth applies to any period of time and it's transcendent of any culture. Which means it just applies anywhere to, to anyone. And, and I showed you this morning that 1 Corinthians 7 follows, the entire chapter follows this pattern where, where Paul gives a principle... And principle is, is not a law, it's a command. So he's applying this, this truth to the Corinthians that have come from this messy background. And then he provides an exception to that principle, meaning when the principle is, is permitted to not be applied. And then he gives his reasoning, and, and that he either spells that out or he implies it. So we can imply it to all of our situations today. Obviously, the hard part, the hard work, the reason that there is differing within, within good believers is because knowing where to apply the principle and where to apply the exception is where the rubber meets the road. And Paul did not and could not cover every single possibility. He gives the principle and he gives the exception. And then you have to be a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed before the Lord and a Berean and, and understanding how to apply it. And so understanding Paul's reasoning behind the principles and the exceptions is essential to be able to apply it. And I think one of the ways that you can test your conclusions for, for timeless application or transcendent application or, uh, is, is whether it, it actually applies to, to other, to other contexts. Sadly, we, we pump a lot of junk out of the, the church in the U.S. 
even when I'm teaching on the mission field, I'll run across uh, so-called Christian books that have gotten into the hands of, of believers. When I was in Malawi, Africa, um, just garbage. They, they were imbibing uh, over there. And, and uh, we pump a lot of stuff out that only works in the U.S. Um, it doesn't work anywhere else. Uh, you know, your best life now is laughable in Saudi Arabia. Nobody's going to follow Joel Osteen in Saudi Arabia. I mean, tell somebody in the church in Russia that in order to find happiness, they, they need to follow the 40 Days of Purpose, which was Rick Warren's old book. They're, they're not thinking about those kind of things. So how, how do you apply some of the conclusions that you draw about, about divorce and, and remarriage or, or discipleship or singleness? I mean, what do you tell a man in the Amazon who's come to Christ with three wives and children from all three of those wives. And they've also come to the Lord. So the whole family's come to the Lord. The husband, the three women, and all the children that come from this polygamous marriage. I mean, how does no divorce, no remarriage work for, for them? I mean, you tell him to pick one of the three wives, and you pick the first one, because that's the one that you made the covenant. What about the other, what about the other two? And the children that, that, that are sent uh, away. And the two that are, that are sent away, are they adulteresses? And, and they're commanded now to never marry because now they've come to Christ? Do you tell them that they must, they must remain single when in their culture there would be no way to support themselves? They can't own property. They can't do anything else. They're, they're going to be out there. They're on their own. What do you tell a woman in India who comes to Christ but is married by family arrangement to a Hindu man who now wants a divorce because she refuses to participate in idol worship. She won't put the paste on her forehead and she won't bow before the idol anymore. If this man, this Hindu man, this unbeliever, leaves her because she's a Christian, do you tell her she must remain in that marriage because she made a covenant? She has no job, she has no skills, no property. And we're literally be out on the out on the street, and you say, "Well, that's where the church comes in. The church ought to take care of her." And that's that's probably true. They should, if that's where she finds her, her herself. But do you think the way the apostle Paul would apply First Corinthians seven, he would tell her that she cannot marry a Christian, or that she's an adulteress if she did? How about this last one? How about uh, uh, in in a Muslim country, there are Muslim men that that have that are in Sharia, law countries, they're able to end their marriages by, by saying the word talaq in, divorce, uh, in Arabic three times, which is, which is for divorce, the word for divorce. It's, I heard that three times. It reminded me of like some bizarre version of that old Michael Keaton movie, Beetlejuice. If you say his name three times, he appears. So this Muslim situation, if he says it three times, can you imagine the way that the men abuse that? So, all right, honey, I've said it once. If I say it again, you know, the third time, you're done. You better make sure you cook a good dinner tonight. So this, uh, uh, by the way, he can do that by letter, by phone, or in person. Either way, he can text her the word. And the Muslim woman seeking a divorce must generally gain permission from her husband, from a imam, a cleric, and also the Islamic authorities before... Before she could divorce. So the, the, the husband comes home. 
says Beetlejuice three times and divorces her. How do you apply the Lord's teaching of marriage and divorce to this woman? Who's now a believer. Or who comes to Christ later. Do you tell her she should beg to stay? Because who knows, she may win her Muslim husband to Christ. I think our attitude, whatever you conclude on those matters, and I think Paul gives us plenty of information to draw some conclusions, your attitude and my attitude ought to be whatever God says is fine with me. If he says stay single, then I'm single. If he says get married, then, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to marry. But these exact kinds of extreme cases are, are the ones that, that are bearing out in Corinth that, that Paul sees. Not Hindu, not, not Muslim, but, but pagan and really ugly, messy situations. And sin can leave an ugly wake behind a boat that has been driven by self for years. And while salvation changes the believer on the inside, it doesn't always change the circumstances on the outside. And that's Paul's point in verse 17. Look at verse 17. This is where we left off. Right after telling the unequally yoked not to divorce, Paul says, because of salvation... That doesn't change your position or your externals. Verse 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk, let him, let him live out his life. And so I direct in all the churches, not just in Corinth, but as Paul says, this is what I've been saying to everybody. The word called is unto salvation. It's God's effectual call that saves. And so here he's saying... As the Lord saves someone, as they've been called into the kingdom, let them live in that same condition. He reinforces that salvation changes you, but you should remain in whatever state you're saved in and not be jumping at changing your earthly situations because that's not what really matters. I mean, some in Corinth were were saying, now I'm saved, what do I do? This is changing the way I'm relating to my wife. I'm, I'm, I'm going to swear off relations with her. Or I'm, mar- I, I, I'm married to an unbeliever. I'm, I'm out of here. And Paul says, no. If you, were, if you were saved as someone who is married to an unbeliever, if that unbeliever is willing, then remain. If you're saved as a single person, then stay single. If you have that gift and you don't burn in lust. If you're divorced, then, then stay single. That's what he's saying here. Salvation changes your masters, it changes your eternal destiny, your heart, your desires. It gives you spiritual life on the inside, but it doesn't change your earthly circumstances. I mean, if you get saved and you're in jail, you are still in jail when you wake up the next morning after you got saved. I mean, if you get saved, you're still in that job that you had, whatever that was. If When you get saved, you're, you, you still have your ethnic background, you're still a Jew, you're still a, you're still a Gentile. You'll still be in that marriage. You'll still be single. And so Paul says, don't worry about that. It has no bearing on your spiritual life. It has no bearing on your, on your spiritual life. And, and one of the questions that, that came up is just, is where did all this mess come from? Um, in the, in the, I mean, because the background is, is pretty significant. I mean, really, when you, when you think about 1 Corinthians 7, you, you have to switch from a Jewish mindset 
to a, to a Gentile mindset. I mean, that's the context that's, that's here. There's, there were Jews in Corinth. There's a synagogue that they found in, in Corinth. So it wasn't meaning they, they didn't understand Jewish culture, but these people were saved primarily out of, out of the Gentile world. And, and Rome had no uniform marriage laws. I mean, this is, that's really where we're headed. We used to have uniform marriage laws. And you understood what, what marriage meant. People understood instinctually what marriage went. It meant it was one man and one woman for a lifetime. But we're moving in the direction with all the illogical nonsense that's today to, to a Corinthian type of, type of culture. I mean, you think about it. We now have to apply these passages. And what does fornication and adultery mean to those who've had a civil union that have, that have come to the Lord? So do you tell them, a person who comes out of a, a, out of a homosexual civil union, that, that they are not to marry and they're to remain single the rest of our lives? I don't think so, because I don't think the homosexual relationship would be valid before God. Well, what about the trend not to marry at all? People aren't marrying at all. I mean, if marriage doesn't mean anything, then, then why even do it? Or you go to Las Vegas and let Elvis do it or, or whatever. What about a heterosexual couple that's lived together for six years? Notice I chose six years, not seven, because then they become common law. Six years. And they've been acting like a married couple. They've been living together. They've been doing everything. They have, they have joint bank accounts. They do all the things that they shouldn't do that a married couple does, but they just never go to the courthouse. How do you go, apply God's principles from 1 Corinthians 7 to them? Or Matthew, for that matter. Would you tell them? If one came to Christ and they separated, that they could marry someone else? Because they were, never went through the process of getting licensed? They're two pagans, they're two unbelievers, they're not going to stand before God. They just never went to the courthouse to ink the deal. But then tell a woman who was divorced prior to salvation, she has to stay single the rest of her, of her life because she did go to the courthouse. See, you can get really tricky when you start trying to figure out how to apply some of these situations. I think Paul would say, stay single if you can, but if you can't, marry. I think that's the summary of 1 Corinthians 7. And under the Roman system, there were four types of marriages. I put that in, in quotes. There were concubines. That was the slaves that were the property of their masters, and the master could could allow what was called tent companionship, the cohabitation. Slave, slave, you look like you produce good children, or you look like it would make you happy to be together, and I want more work out of you, so I'm going to put you together. And they had no choice. And like I said this morning, since Christians were mainly from the lower class, a lot of them, and a number of them were slaves, they, they want to know what now. I, mean, I, I can't move out. The master won't let me move out. If I try to run away, I'm going to be like, I'm going to need a letter from Paul to Philemon. <laughs> so that was one type. There were, there were two ways that, that common people married. One was called usus, and the other one was coemptio. Usus is what we would call common law marriage. It just happened when, whenever, whenever a couple lived under uh, a man's roof for, for at least a year. They had one year rather than seven years. It's kind of like uh, it's kind of like um, 
which state do you live in? Because if the woman spent three nights out of that year out from under the man's roof, then it reset the clock. So you know how you spend so many months in Florida and so many months in, you know, in Virginia and depends on where you're, well, one year, not seven years, and you were considered married if it was full 365 days. That's what common people did. Didn't have a big ceremony. Coemptio was the other kind, and that, what you would call an arranged marriage or dowry, marriage by sale. A man would uh, approach a father and would purchase his daughter for a dowry. And the wife and her possessions then belonged to, to her husband. And finally, there was what the, the rich folk did or the nobles did. Um, Conferatio, which is what we would probably think of traditional marriage. Under this scenario, there were ten witnesses. There were witnesses for the bride, witnesses for the groom. They exchanged rings. They had vows. They joined hands. The rings were placed on the third finger on the left hand because some Roman doctor dug up a dead body one time and said he found a, uh, a nerve that went straight from the ring finger, as we now call it, straight to the heart. So that's the reason you put the ring on that finger. They had a wedding cake, and there were flowers, and there were veils. Does that sound familiar? It does. It should, because that's where a lot of it, a lot of it comes from. And coming out of all of that, Paul says, believers, however that happened, you should remain in the condition that, that, you, were, that you were saved in. And watch how he develops it. Here's the general principle in verse 17. Believers should remain in the social condition or situation in which they became a, they became a Christian. As the Lord assigned us each one, as God has called in this manner, let him walk. And in verse 18, he applies that to circumcision. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He's not to become uncircumcised. I don't know exactly how that could be possible, but anyway. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. So he applies this principle, remain in whatever condition that you were called. If you were a Jew, you're still an ethnic Jew. If you were a Gentile, you're still an ethnic Gentile. Circumcision, his reasoning is circumcision is irrelevant. It's irrelevant for new covenant believers. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And then he applies the same principle to slaves. General principle is, is repeated. Verse 20, each man must remain in the, that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you're able also to become free, rather do that. So here's the general principle. Remain in the condition that you were called and that's applied to slavery. But there's an exception here. The exception is, if you're able to become free, then do that. That's better. So, here is an exception to the general principle to remain. So, a converted slave, if he has opportunity to change his social status to that of a free man, then he should pursue his, his freedom. And he gives the reason in verse 22 and 23. Verse 22, here's the reasoning. For he 
who was called in the Lord while a slave. There's a social status. You're saved as a slave. You're the Lord's freedman. And likewise, he who was called while free, somebody saved that's not a slave, is Christ's slave. So the reason that he says this, and the reason he applies this principle and the exception is because believers are both free in Christ and they're Christ's slaves. Therefore, you should not be or become the slaves of, of men. So you see the principle and the exception and the reasoning. And then he gives a, a final statement again before he comes back to the new topic, verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. And here he says again in verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain in that condition in which he was called. He repeats that multiple, multiple times. So it's a repeated transition before a new application. So some of the believers in Corinth wondered if their newfound salvation was a reason to, to jump or to change things. So some moved to celibacy, and Paul says no. Some wanted out of their marriages, and Paul said remain unless the unbeliever leaves. Some were being pressured by Judaizers to submit to extra-biblical instructions like circumcision. And Paul says it means nothing now. Some were saved as slaves, and they wanted to say, Christ has freed me, so you can no longer be my master. I'm going to rise up. And Paul says it's just the opposite. The fact that Christ has changed you means that you should be willing to serve and accept your marital status or social situation unless it changes in a God-permitted way. If you can become free, then be free. If due to circumstance the unbeliever leaves, then you're not under bondage. So don't deprive your spouse because of your past sin. Don't divorce. Don't seek externals for righteousness. And don't revolt. It's probably a good way to... To summarize that, you have no rights. You're Christ's slave. And you're not another man's. But Christ is a merciful master. So you're free in Him. Free from sin, right? So give yourself away. Remain in the marriage unless they leave. Seek Christ, not mutilation by extra rules. And, and serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Alright? That brings us... To verse 25 and the, the final category. All right? Those never married. Now, this is a fascinating passage of Scripture, and I use this passage, verse 25 and on, quite regularly in premarital counseling. And I use it for any number of reasons. But one of the, one of the, the, the things I think it's helpful for people that are trying to decide whether to marry or not is a principle that says, you've got to ask yourself, are you better for the kingdom together than apart? And that's usually not what, what two people that, that have got the butterflies and, you know, the, uh, the hormones and everything else that's racing are thinking about. They're thinking, oh, isn't she beautiful? And she's thinking, oh, isn't he handsome? And Paul says, it's, this world is tough, and it's going to get really, really ugly. And the only thing that you have, the only purpose for you to live is for the kingdom. 
So that beauty is going to fade and that handsomeness is going to go out the window. And when the whole world comes after you and starts to persecute you for your faith, that's not going to matter. What's going to matter is are you two better for the kingdom than apart? So you need to go in there eyes wide, wide open. So we've dealt with single, we've dealt with married and widowed, previously married, and now he comes to the virgins or the never married. Look at verse 25. He says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Repeats that same principle. Remain as you are when you get saved. So if you come to Christ as a virgin, as someone who has never married, then remain. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet you will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you some of that trouble, Paul says. Now, here's another question that I received back in verse 25. And it was the same thing in verse 12. When Paul says, when Paul says, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who, by the mercy of the Lord, is trustworthy. When Paul says he's saying something that Jesus didn't, does that mean it has less authority? Than Jesus' words. And the answer to that, hopefully, you will say no. Because that would deny the doctrine of inspiration and sufficiency and a number of other things. The authority of 1 Corinthians is just like any other book in the Bible. It's based on inspiration, which applies to the author of the biblical text, not just the quotes, and here's my point, not just the quotes from God. Look at verse 10. Paul's already done the opposite here. Verse 10. But to the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. What's he saying? He says he's sharing teaching that Jesus shared. He's quoting the Lord. This is not new revelation, but a reminder of what Jesus taught while he was on the earth. And you can clearly see verse 10 and 11 parallels Matthew 19 and also Mark chapter chapter 10. Don't divorce. But look at verse 12. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord. I say, not the Lord. That's why this is clearly the the final revelation on the topic. Paul's saying, I'm telling you things that the Lord didn't address while he was on the earth, but he is addressing it now through me, and that's the point. (laughs) This is not a repeat of what Jesus said. 
This is not just a man's opinion. This is not just the Apostle Paul saying, wait a minute, time out. I'm not talking about the Bible anymore. I'm just going to give you my opinion over here. And this is, this is Scripture. This is not a repeat of what Jesus shared. This is something new. He doesn't mean that it wasn't inspired or from God or somehow it's lesser revelation. Any more than the letter to the Colossians that wasn't a quote from Jesus is not inspired. The Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, shared many things that are the Word of God and also things that Jesus didn't specifically say or is recorded that he taught during the three years while he was while he was on the earth. Look at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 40. Look at what he says at the very end of his teaching on this whole topic. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So why is Paul using this opinion language? And others? Well, he's given principles. These principles have exceptions. So these are by concession, not a command, but has nothing to do with whether it's lesser truth or, or not in, inspired. Whether they're the words of Jesus recorded by Mark or the words of, of Moses. Now, I can remember a, a very crazy illustration of this that, that, that's personal. I can remember a message that I preached at a church on, on Mother's Day from Titus chapter 2. And right in the middle of the, of the message, Titus chapter 2, you know, I, I want... I want older women to do this, and I want younger women to do that, and I, I want them to keep the home, and all the things that Titus 2, 2 says. And somewhere in the middle of the message, the choir director, who was a lady, got up and practically ran out of the church in the middle of the, in the, middle of the sermon. And so I thought, you know, well, what's wrong? I mean, you know, that happens. You're preaching. Kind of see something take place. And you don't know, I mean, you know, did she get a text, a bad phone call? Is she sick? What, what's wrong? Because I can't see her face as she's, as she's moving out. So I, I move to the back of the church and go into the foyer. And one of her friends, another lady, meets me in the foyer. And in the foyer, there's like this little broom closet. And she opens the door to the broom closet and pulls me into the broom closet and shuts the door. This is not the woman, but, but her best friend. And I'm thinking, all right, well, how do I get out of this situation? <laughs> And what's coming? And she said something, to, I don't remember exact words, but she, was, she said, I'm offended. And I don't know if you saw such and such run out this morning. I, I, I'm, I am a guest preacher, so this is not my church. I don't know these people. I don't know if you saw that woman run out of the church, but, but she is highly offended. She is in the parking lot crying right now. And I said, oh, well, I'm so sorry. What, what happened? Why? And she said, because of what you said from the pulpit this morning. I said, well, well, what did I say? You know, I'm thinking, you know, I mean, I stick my foot in my mouth all the time. I mean, what, what stupid thing did I say? And so I said, well, I'll go talk to her. So I went out and found her in the parking lot. And sure enough, she was there by her car and she was, she was agitated and, and, uh, and teary eyed. And, and, uh, I said, what, what happened? And she said, I am highly offended. 
by, by, by what you preached. And um, I said, well, well, what specific was it? I mean, I, I just, did I say something about it? I just read the passage and explained what it, what it meant. And, and she said, yes, you did. And I don't agree with that. And, and I, I said, well, okay. I mean, I, I'm not sure I can, I can really help you, you know, there. Why, why don't you agree with it? She said, because, because those are the things that Paul said. Those are not the things that Jesus said, and I don't have to listen to what Paul said. Those are the words of Paul, not the words of Jesus. I only believe the words of Jesus. And I thought, I don't know that I've ever encountered somebody with that poor of an understanding of the doctrine of inspiration. I really didn't know exactly what to say. I just said, so, so you don't believe in the Ten Commandments? And she said, well, that's different. And I said, well, how about Genesis? Or how about... Parts of the Old Testament. And she said, I only believe the words that Jesus wrote, you know, the ones that are in red in my Bible, those are the ones that are the most important. And she is what I later found out is called a red-letter Bible reader. Somebody who attributes extra importance to the words of Jesus. And that's... That's not correct. Obviously, when Jesus speaks, you want to understand what he said and in the context. But at no point in this chapter does Paul intend to say that I'm going to be teaching something that's not God's word or is lesser. He's simply saying that it's not part of the scriptural record of Jesus' words, but by the Holy Spirit, this is new revelation. That's what he means at the very end. So what what does he say? Divergence, and why does he say what what he said? Well, here's the the big picture, if you will. Corinth, you know, is a very immoral place, a very immoral culture, and the people are wanting to distance themselves. You saw that in in remaining single, not touching a woman. You saw that in celibacy. You saw that in in all the, uh, up to up to this point, and so they're coming to the conclusion these virgins, these never married, that they want to distance themselves completely from marriage and from physical relations, and that's going to be the spiritual high ground. And so they want to be people who have never been married. And Paul wants to give them some instructions. And here's the principle in verse 26. I think then that it is good, in the view of this present distress, It's good for a man to remain as he is. So here's the principle. Single people should consider singleness and not marriage as their first option. And the reasoning is because aspects of life are more difficult whenever you get married. That's what he says in verse 28. Yet such will have trouble in this life and I'm trying to to spare you. Some aspects of life are more difficult whenever you're, whenever you're married. Verse 29. But this I say, brethren, that the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as those who have none, and those who weep as those who do not weep, and those who rejoice as those who do not rejoice, and those who buy as though they do not possess. And those who make use of the world as though they do not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. 
So all of the things that you can distract you, take you away from serving Christ, you better not let them do that because the form of this world is, is passing away. In verse 32, I want you to be free from, free from that concern. So that's why he says, are you bound? Don't seek. Are you released? Don't seek. And the exception that he gives in verse 28, but if you marry, you've not sinned, and a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So some divorced or widowed persons can, mar- can remarry without sinning, depending upon their situation, i.e. Matthew 19. Some single people will want to marry, and it's not a sin for them to do so. In verses 19 through 35, he gives the various reasons for single Christians to remain single. But he acknowledges that his reasoning will not apply to to all believers. And if they want to marry, it's not sin for them to do that. Verse 32. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. It's not saying that that's bad. I mean, if you're married, you should be concerned. You're commanded to be concerned about the things of your, of your husband or, or your wife. And that's not an excuse not to care about the things of the Lord. It's just how much opportunity that you have to do both of those, those things. Verse 34, his interests are divided. And there's the divided interest. You have to do both. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin... So the previous are formerly married, now single, and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy in body and spirit. But, here's the contrast, the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. And again, that's not world like bad, it's just earth, things of earth, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit not to put a restraint on you. So he's not saying, I'm saying this to bind your conscience. I'm saying this to free your conscience. But to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So he clearly says, if you're single, if you're a virgin and you have a desire to marry, it's not a bad thing. You're not somehow more spiritual if you take a vow of, of, of nunnery or, or whatever they call it. I'm not binding your conscience here. I'm speaking wisdom to you. You're going to have divided loyalties. And you're going to have to manage both of those. And I'm saying this for your, for your own benefit. Now, he shifts gears here in verse 36. Look at verse 36. But if any man, father, two translations here, This is a a man who has a betrothed woman or a father who has a virgin daughter. I, I take that position. Verse 36, principles are the same regardless. But if any father or man thinks he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. 
So Paul deals with one final issue here. He shifts to to fathers who still have authority over their their daughters, and they have taken a vow. And the other view is that this is someone who has a betrothed wife. So betrothed, I'm, I have been betrothed to marry somebody else that hasn't been consummated, so they're still virgins, and I am not going to go through with the marriage. So that's that's one of the of views. It's possible. But if any man thinks he is, or any father thinks he is, uh, who is acting unbecomingly. So just as some who came to Christ from an immoral background swore off relations with the opposite sex, it seems either some fathers here or some individuals who were engaged were responding in the same way toward their, toward their unmarried children or their unmarried spouse or their unmarried what would you call it? Their fiancés. And they were vowing um, not to let their children marry because society is so perverse and so so crooked. And they were doing that out of good motives. They were doing that out to try to, to try to help them. I mean, believing fathers understood the difficulties of married life, and the shortness of time and the sinfulness of man. And so they said, I want to keep my young daughter from all of those difficulties. And boy, do I understand those verses. And boy, do I understand those verses even more and more as my daughters get get older. They're saying, I don't want my daughters marrying some men out of the world. And I understand that. I want them to be pure. I want them to serve Christ. And this is not even putting a high bar up there for them to, to cross. It is... I'm going to keep them as virgins at home. I'm going to take care of them. They're going to stay under my roof. I'm going to provide for them. I'm making that commitment. I don't want them to have to deal with all the immorality that that may come or has been part of my life in the past. And I I would just say, as a father, girls, listen to to your daddies. Uh, they, They love you, and if you think that they're being overbearing, it's probably out of that love. They may be overbearing, but it's out of that love because they they want to protect you. And I can understand. Some are refusing to to let them marry for for those reasons. I'll take care of you, you can stay at home, you can spend your life in service to the to the Lord. But look at what he says in verse 36. But if a man thinks he's acting unbecomingly, why would he be acting unbecomingly? Well, because he's done something prior to this verse. He's unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, and she's past her youth. And if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin if what must be so? The fact that she marries. It's come to that point. He doesn't sin. Let, let her marry. Now, he's going to say the opposite in verse 37 in a minute. And so now the girl gets older. And she grows up and says, I really appreciate you, Daddy, wanting to keep me at home and wanting to take care of me. And I really appreciate that, that vow, but I don't want to stay at home. I want to be married. What does the father do? Verse 36. If he thinks he's acting unbecomingly toward his daughter, he lets her marry, Paul says. The father does not sin in that case. So if you have made that vow or you've, you've made that intention before and you feel like that you're acting unbecomingly and she's past her youth, she gets older, 
then you've not sinned if you, if you let her marry. But in verse 37, But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. He's not giving one is better than the other, or one rules over the other. Both are good. And you can see, as you read that, how this could clearly be a betrothal situation. So what's the trigger? What, what determines and who determines? Well, I think verse 36 gives, gives the ruling principle. He's concerned about acting unbecomingly, and she is past her youth. She's grown up. So if it gets to that point where this is now an action that is unbecoming to her, and she does not desire or want, then you do not sin, let her marry. But still hold the bar really, really high, at least in my house. So here's the exception. In spite of the remain-as-you-are principle, it's not sin for a single woman to marry or to be given in marriage. And then Paul rounds out this final teaching in verse 39 in 40, and he gives a general principle, he applies it to widows. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So we said this morning, regardless of how you apply this, a believer must marry a believer. There is no option there. There's no exception there. If you're already married to an unbeliever, then that's not choosing to marry. But a believer marries a believer. I can tell you, and you can probably testify, of the, of the heartache that comes when an unbelie- a believer marries an, an unbeliever. And usually it goes something like this. I know he's not as spiritual as me or as you would want him to be, or I know she's not as spiritual as you would want her to be, but I can change her. I can change him. Once I get him in the marriage, then we'll have all this time to read the Bible together and pray together, and we'll serve the Lord together, and it doesn't work that way. Um, Sometimes it does, but it doesn't work that way. Um... So the exception that he gives here, in spite of remain as you are, remain in the condition in which you were called. Remember, that's the context. Whatever you were saved in, um, remain in that condition. That's the principle. Here's an exception. It's not sin for a Christian widow to remarry as long as she marries a believer. And his reason is, once a marriage is dissolved by death, a person is free from all the restrictions of that of that married couple. But, verse 40, just so Paul throws that final plug for singleness in there. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the, the spirit of, of God. So the, the widow's first option is to remain in her unmarried state. But there's nothing unspiritual or wrong whatsoever about, about remarrying. Or as a lady, 
Her name was Bethleen. She's with the Lord now, so I don't mind quoting her name. You wouldn't know her anyway. She was in Red House, and she was in her 90s whenever it was I was there. She was late 80s, in her early 90s. And she had outlived three husbands, and she was on number four. And I remember thinking as a young, uh, you know, young believer to this, to this guy, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, you're number four and she's outlived four of them. You might have wanted to rethink this thing because he was way younger <laughs> than she was. Nothing at all wrong with what Bethleen did. Um, according to the Scripture, all of them were believers. All of them went to be with the Lord, and so she wasn't bound in, in any way. And uh, they were they were a delightful couple. So, let me summarize all of it. We've been in four messages. We looked at Mark and back to Genesis, and then the Deuteronomy, the law regulating, and then the prophets applying, and then Matthew and the exception, and then the commentary in First Corinthians seven. What's the final conclusion of the whole? Of the whole matter. And you say, why didn't you just give me this to begin with? Because that's not the way that it works. You've got to see what God says. Because it really doesn't matter what I say. It really doesn't. God designed marriage from creation as one man and one woman joined by covenant, the wife of your covenant, by cleaving, that's the pressing together, in physical, I'm leaving my home. I'm pressing in with this this man or this woman to where my heart and her heart and my mind and her mind and our lives are are joined together. They're glued together, and also by physical, by sexual union, and that is lifelong. That's that's the design. However, after the fall in a sin cursed world, divorce happens because of the hardness of heart. And the Bible clearly teaching teaches that divorce is always a result of some sin. Divorce produces defilement, Deuteronomy 24.4. Divorce happens in a world that has been corrupted. Divorce was regulated by God because of the hardness of hearts, which I might add is the word that he used for those who lack salvation. And for mercy to the offended. That's why he regulates it. And when it does occur, for whatever reason, God hates it. He hates sin, and he hates the breaking of the bond, and he hates the pain that it causes. And because of that hardness, God, in his mercy, has regulated it. So when adultery takes place, and the immoral party refuses to repent or return... God allows the other party to be free and not to be an adulterer themselves because the bond of marriage has been broken. When an unbeliever refuses to remain in a marriage to a Christian because they're hostile to the gospel, then the believer is not under bondage and they are free to marry in the Lord. Any other reason for divorce and remarriage leads to the sin of adultery. And you must remain unmarried or be reconciled to your spouse. Separation may take place because of sin or danger. Romans 13 may come into play if the spouse is breaking the law. 
In case of violence, Matthew 18 may come into play because where the sinning spouse refuses to repent and they may be placed under discipline and may be declared an unbeliever by the church. That's where the church has to give a functional judgment, not a final judgment. That's the weighty responsibility that, that elders have where they have to wade in and try to figure out all of the different circumstances when you can't see the heart and you don't know what happens. And they said, no, 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 I was divorced 15 years ago and that man left me and he was an adulterer and he wouldn't return, therefore I'm okay. I mean, you have no idea. And so to a certain degree, it's on them. What's on you is to draw the conclusion functionally based on the Scriptures the best that you can. You're not held accountable for... However, they twist the situation or the truth or others. You're accountable for what you understand and to faithfully apply the Scriptures to those matters and those situations. It's the same way whenever you, whenever you marry. It's not Catholic. I don't, I don't sprinkle marriage dust on anybody whenever they stand up there and they take the covenant. They're making a covenant before God. I am a Christian minister and it is a Christian worship service. It's a picture of Christ and the church. And I'm calling them as believers to hear what the Word of God says. But I don't do anything to them. And so if they lie to me and they, they say that they were pure and they're not pure, that's not on me, that's on them. If they divorce after that, that's not on me, that, that's on them. What's on me is to be faithful to administer the Word of God to the best I understand to that, to that situation. And so the elders are called to do that sometimes in Matthew 18 imperfectly as it may be. It's not a final judgment. Only God is final and only He sees the heart. But you are to, you're to call the situation functionally based on their fruits and their patterns of their lives and will, whether they'll hear what the, what the Scripture says. So you might be called to do that in a situation. If two believers are married and they separate or divorce... They must remain unmarried or be reconciled until one of those other two exceptions takes place. Either one spouse becomes an unrepentant adulterer or they're declared an unbeliever by by the church. And even then, it's it's pretty, pretty complicated. So if you're single, stay that way. For the kingdom. Unless you think marriage would cause you to be better for the kingdom together with someone than apart, or you're struggling with sin. And if you're struggling with sin, then repent and pursue marriage to a believer. If you're married, stay that way for the kingdom. An unhappy marriage or an unequally yoked marriage. And you've already given your rights away, so serve your spouse for Jesus' sake and be privileged to be his portrait to to a lost world. I'm sure you have other questions, um, probably things that came to your mind. If you want to ask them, you want to send me an email, I'll be happy to answer them the best that, uh, that I can, but that's my best attempt at trying to be faithful uh, to the text of Scripture on, on, that, uh, on that topic. So let's pray. And then we'll be dismissed.